Well, this morning is um, bittersweet in terms of our sermon series because uh, Acts is coming to an end. Uh, we've called Acts Jesus Part 2 because Acts is a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. Luke had written his gospel chronicling the life and ministry of Jesus while he walked on earth. And in the very first pages of Acts, Jesus ascends to heaven, returning to the right hand of the Father. But it's not a loss for the people of God because Jesus has left the Holy Spirit to dwell within believers and to empower us to continue to do and to teach what he began. There's no loss. The mission continues. In chapter 1, verse 8, it's not up here, but it's one of the better known verses in um, the book. Jesus tells his disciples to wait in Jerusalem because he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that ends up being an outline for the entire book of Acts. The gospel begins to take root right there at gospel headquarters in Jerusalem and then begins to spread into the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria, ironically through persecution, and finally, uh, primarily through the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, it begins to reach the ends of of the earth. In today's last passage, Paul arrives in Rome. For him, the end of the earth, as far as he would ever get. Uh, I'll read selectively from chapter 28, starting in verse 1. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, They changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways and when we were ready to sail... They furnished us with the supplies we needed. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we reached Puteoli. There, we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. Verse 23. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day, and he came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, 
but others would not believe. Verse 30. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this magnificent book, for the little details that give color to the birth of the New Testament church. Show us that these words are just as relevant today as they were 2,000 years ago. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First uh, part of uh, our outline to walk us through this passage, hinting at new creation. Uh, In last week's passage, end of chapter 27, we didn't read all of the verses, but um, to catch us up, the ship that Paul was traveling on weathered the incredible storm, but just barely. It ran aground on a sandbar where the surf pounded on that ship and tore it to pieces. The people on the ship swam for shore, and the word of God spoken to Paul was fulfilled. Not a single person on that ship was lost. Everyone survived. The people of Malta on the island, um, you can see the little map uh, where the shipwreck occurred, and they uh, spent the winter there. Uh, They were very hospitable to the refugees, built a fire. Paul, being a helpful guy, uh, goes and gets some uh, firewood and throws it on the fire, and out comes the snake in the pile of the wood and bites him, a poisonous serpent. Um, Kind of an interesting little detail that Luke, the author of Acts, throws in here. But um, I think this is what he's trying to emphasize. If chapter 27... Near death on the seas with the nor'easter, the destructive storm, and then the shipwreck itself. If, if chapters 27 was uh, like crucifixion, near death, then chapter 28 feels very different. It's like resurrection. There's new life. There's vitality. There's overcoming. And one of the themes that we'll keep coming back to, because this is what chapter 28 is trying to emphasize, The gospel cannot be stopped. The sea and the snake have taken their best shot. And Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, overcomes. Last week we said that the sea, to Jewish people, the sea represented darkness and chaos and destruction. It was to be feared. The sea tries to swallow Paul, but it has no power over the Lord of the sea. The snake, it's a um, prominent symbol in the Bible of temptation and sin, starting from the uh, third chapter of the Bible. In Genesis 3, the serpent, representing Satan, tempts Adam and Eve while they're in the Garden of Eden and leads them to their first sin. The serpent represents, Genesis 3.15, all of those who would oppose the people of God. And here the serpent, biting the servant of the Lord, is overcome. It cannot thwart the advance of the gospel. More uh, details from chapter 28. Um, When Paul heals the chief official's father, who had long been sick, all of the other sick on the island show up, and Paul heals them. More tastes of new creation. That fits what we saw in Jesus' ministry. You know, he he walked this earth and ministered and taught and, and 
went among the people for three plus years of his earthly existence. And, and sometimes we're tempted to, to think of all of the healings and miracles as sort of a bonus, you know, in, in its own category. Jesus' primary mission, the, the point of his coming in the flesh was to give his own life as a perfect substitute to pay for the sins of all those who would trust in Jesus, to provide um, satisfaction of God's justice, to rescue His people. But the healings are part and parcel with what He's doing. If His ultimate mission was to come and destroy the power of sin and death, the healings that preceded His going to the cross and walking out of the tomb were these little foretastes were glimpses of resurrection power because the cross was about destroying the power of sin and death. And the healings are about pushing back, at least temporarily, the effects of sin and death, like sickness and disease. That's the same theme that we find here at the end of chapter 28. After death and destruction have taken their best shot at God's primary weapon, the Apostle Paul, the sea and the snake, sickness is healed, death is being overcome, resurrection power is extending to all parts of life. Ironically, all while Paul is still in chains as a prisoner of the Roman Empire. That leads us, secondly, to staying on course. We see a remarkable picture of faithfulness on his part, even in the midst of struggle. I want you to imagine for a minute with me that you're going through a severe trial, maybe physical suffering, some kind of bad diagnosis. If you're part of the church, the community steps up to the plate and a prayer vigil is held and a prayer team on an ongoing basis is keeping up to date with you and, and your family. Someone would set up a care pages website so that everyone can check in on, on all the details and read up on the latest happenings and the treatments and the response. If you were Paul... In that situation, um, if we combine our worlds, your social media updates might sound like this. Folks, I almost got killed by a mob yesterday, chapter 21. Pray for my safety and my recovery because I got beat pretty bad, chapters 22 and 23. I'm not getting a fair trial. I almost got flogged yesterday until I had to pull out my citizen card and remind them that I had rights. Pray for charges to be dismissed. There's no evidence. This is outrageous that I'm sitting here day after day in prison when my opponents can't prove a single thing. I need a good lawyer. Does anyone have any recommendations? Chapters 23 and 24. Last night I found out through a friend someone put a hit out on my life. There are guys waiting to ambush me, but thankfully the cops found out and they put together a small army and whisked me off in the middle of the night to Caesarea. Wi-Fi is spotty here on the coast but I'll try to update you as much as I can. Pray for favor because tomorrow morning I meet with the governor. Two years go by. Two years. The visits to the Care Pages website start. Stop. The likes on social media, what's there to like? You don't hear a single thing. Nothing's going on. People forget prayer doesn't seem to be reaching heaven. People give up. They get up angry with God. Then sudden activity. Friends, I appeal to Caesar, headed to Rome. Pray for safe passage on the seas and a quick trial date. Mid-journey, the Holy Spirit provides a cell signal on the ship. Hey, friends, pray hard. We're starving. 
We had to throw everything overboard. The storm is going to get us. We might not make it. Love you all. Pray for a miracle. And then a few days later, on land, terra firma in Malta, we miraculously made it. Praise God. And not a single person lost, just as God had said. Next stop, Rome. And then the prayer vigils uh, re-up. The intensity of the machine of the church, now extending from Jerusalem to Rome, the networking kicks into high gear. People rallied to come to uh, Paul's aid to provide for his physical needs, to, uh, uh, to exert political pressure on the palace in Rome so that he, as the innocent apostle, is exonerated. It's all about vindication. This is a wrong and they want to right it. But that's not the way Acts unfolds. Yeah, Luke, the author, gives us these details of Paul's circumstance. But the point of the narrative has nothing to do with Paul and his freedom. It has nothing to do with Paul ultimately getting vindicated in the justice system of the world, in the Roman Empire. It does not worry about his physical safety. There's absolutely no hint of self-pity. In the author's voice, there's no despair that Paul's amazing apostolic ministry that has transformed so many lives, that has started all these churches, that has sparked this world-changing movement of the gospel is about to end, or even that his life is about to end. There's no despair. There's just a matter-of-fact reporting that Paul has landed. He's safe. He's arriving in Rome. He takes three days to settle in. That's it. And then he resumes his gospel ministry. With whom can I share this best of news that Jesus is risen? Why is that? Because Acts is written to show in the beginning that, yes, Jesus has ascended, but his Holy Spirit has descended and empowered his people. And now Jesus commissions his followers to continue to do and to teach what he began. And this ending of the book shows that nothing, neither sea, snakes, nor sickness, neither the Roman Empire or the religious opposition can stop the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. The gospel is triumphant, and it will overcome. Verse 31 tells us that Paul spent two years in Rome waiting for trial. If we add in simple math what we know has happened in his life, there's this continuous almost five-year stretch of him being in chains. He had been um, arrested at the mob scene in Jerusalem. Days later, he was whisked to Caesarea where he stayed for two years. Then he spent time on the ship um, at at least a few weeks, probably months. And we know that they spent about three years, uh, three months on the island of Malta waiting for winter to pass so that ships could sail safely again. All told, almost five years in prison, in chains. And we're we're tempted to think in, in those kinds of circumstances, what a waste. You know, God's spiritual MVP on the sidelines for no reason. Well, why couldn't God use him, mobilize him, enable him to be free to, to make the kind of impact that he has had over all these decades? But chains don't slow down the Apostle Paul, uh, Paul one single bit. British pastor John Stott writes that Paul's witness was expanded enriched 
and authenticated by his suffering in prison. It was expanded. All kinds of people came to see Paul. Because of his suffering in prison, he got a chance, backing up for a minute, to minister to Jews and Gentiles, to governors of the Roman Empire, to the Jewish king Agrippa, to soldiers and then sailors during the entire journey. And now in Rome, for two years, he welcomed, verse 30, all who came to see him in a cosmopolitan global city, if you will. All kinds of people from all over the Roman Empire. Likely curious as to this famous prisoner and what he would have to say. He was free to take visitors. And we know what he talked to every single visitor about, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, we assume because God said he would, chapter 27, verse 24, Paul eventually had an audience with Caesar himself, the earthly king, if you will, the highest power the world had to offer. His ministry was expanded. He got to meet people and share the gospel with them far beyond uh, what he normally would have had he continued his apostolic ministry and taken missionary journey number four. Secondly, his, his ministry was enriched by his suffering. While in prison, he wrote these letters that pop up in our Bible. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Not a bad set of productivity while sitting in a jail cell. And these are called, as you would um, guess, the prison epistles, written from prison. They, they have this unique undercurrent of joy and peace and contentment. You know, Philippians is known as the, the epistle of joy. Um, Ephesians has this marvelous vision of the sovereignty of God. These are not unique among all of his letters, but they, there seems to be this extra zest, this extra passion, the zeal. Um, and more than in his other letters, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians exalt the lordship of Jesus Christ, especially Colossians, that the supremacy of Christ in Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 23. No surprise, because as he was sitting in this um, house uh, arrest uh, place in Rome, waiting to meet with Caesar himself, who was called Lord by his subjects. Paul would have heard that over and over, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord. He was chuckling to himself, writing these letters and saying, oh no, he's not. Caesar may have an empire while he has breath, but Jesus has a cosmos and death cannot grab a hold of him any longer. Let me tell you about the real Lord, the real King. Thirdly, Paul's suffering authenticated his ministry. It's one thing to write letters and preach sermons. It's another thing to live out the truth that you are sharing and to be willing to die for it, knowing that it is true above it all else. That leads us, lastly, to proclaiming the kingdom. Acts comes to an end, but we see a couple of familiar themes connecting us back to chapter 1. After Jesus' resurrection, the disciples in chapter 1, verse 6, asked him, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You know, they had despaired. The Messiah, they thought, was going to redeem Israel and thwart all of the, the earthly rulers had died a humiliating death on a cross, like every other Roman criminal. 
But now the, the despair turns into joy and excitement. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to exert your power? Are you going to show them who's boss? And Jesus, like so often in his ministry, doesn't really give them a direct answer. He says, go proclaim the kingdom. That's how you'll exert the influence that I have over all the earth. Go proclaim the kingdom. Well, how does Acts end? Last verse of the book. Paul, in prison, proclaimed the kingdom of God. It was happening. It's an abrupt ending, isn't it? The book of Acts. But it's on purpose because Luke simply wants the reader to know. Again, here's this theme. It's happening, what Jesus told his disciples to do, even in chains, even far from Jerusalem, while waiting for trial before the earthly king, Caesar himself, and it's unhindered. That's the very last word in the, uh, in the book of Acts, unhindered. The gospel cannot be stopped. It is triumphant over every other so-called power. And then Jesus said to his disciples, again, that famous verse, or well-known verse, verse 8 of chapter 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Her first century traveler arriving in Rome, Paul has reached the end of the earth. It's being fulfilled. Luke ends Acts. I think most of you would agree with me. This is not a very satisfactory end to the book. Ever watch a movie, and next thing you know, the credits are rolling. You're thinking, "What? <laughs> like, you didn't finish the story? How can you know? Hard spent money. I, I want the end. I want resolution. You know, when I get to the end of a book and there's there's not a, a nicely tied. I, I don't need mystery. I don't need to use my imagination. I, I'm reading this book. I want you to tell me what happened." And if you don't resolve all these loose ends, I'm kind of ticked at the author. You know, just a forward or whatever you call that, a postlude, you know, in, uh, in author's terms. Um, I'm not sure what the musical term for it is, but, um, you know, and, and John and John don't program these. But sometimes there's this, there, there are songs, and, and at the end of the song, it's just like something's missing. I'm left hanging. You know, there, there, there's not resolution. And, and that's what the end of the book of Acts is like. We shouldn't be satisfied and they lived happily ever after. No. Here's the the prior narrative and it's been pretty action-packed, right? We can just go back to Paul arriving in Jerusalem. Before that, his closest friends had begged him not to go knowing what would happen to him and he said, I have to. That's my calling. He arrives in Jerusalem. Sure enough, there's a riot. The uh, religious leaders are opposing him. Um, they, they're making accusations against him, so the Roman soldiers throw him in prison. He's about to be beaten. Um, he appeals to Caesar. He meets governors and kings, and there's uh, several layers of the trial. He gets on a ship uh, too late in the season. It goes through this incredible storm. They're shipwrecked. Viper bites him. Islanders welcome them. He finally gets to Rome, and we want to say, wait, 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 What happened? How could you walk us through this incredible drama and leave us hanging? That's what Luke does. And I think part of his answer, if we were to protest, would start like this. You forget, this is not about Paul. This is about Jesus. 
whether Paul rots in prison or is freed the next day, whether he lives or dies, is not all that relevant. If you're worried about Paul, look, he has resurrection promises. He's going to be okay. He's not going to lack anything. And he himself says, for me to live as, for, to live as Christ and to die as gain. This is not about Paul, what happens to him. What's most relevant is the Jesus that Paul proclaims. That's what Luke, the author of the Acts, would remind us with. In a sense, Luke does that choose-your-own-adventure thing, you know, to fill in the blank. How does the story end? Not any way you'd like, as in, uh, you know, a childlike imagination, but according to the flow of um, salvation history, according to everything that you've read in Acts, how does it end? And um, this is how Acts needs to impact each of us. This is how Acts needs to end when each of us hear Luke say, you're right, this is not over. There's nothing to tie up because now it's your turn to fulfill the commission Jesus gave to his disciples to proclaim the good news of his life, death, and resurrection to the ends of the earth. Your turn. You finish the story. You fill in the blanks with your own chapters. Paul went as far as he could But even 2,000 years later, there are farther ends of the earth where people need to hear about Jesus. An Acts kind of church is what we long for, isn't it? I've shared with you at the very beginning of the series that I've heard over the years people say, you know, we need to be an Acts kind of church, implying that, you know, better decisions here or, or, or different priorities there would change the trajectory. And that might be true here and there. But at the beginning of Acts, we saw, if there ever was a formula, we saw a formula for being the kind of church that the apostles led in the first century. Because I say it's possible today because this same Jesus is ours by faith. And this same power of the Holy Spirit whom he left for his people That power is accessible to us all the same if, this was the formula we saw over and over, we humble ourselves before the only real king, we desperately depend on him in prayer, vital, regular prayer, and having been filled, the natural effect is to boldly proclaim the risen Savior Jesus. That cycle is how we become an acts kind of church. We can access that power of the Spirit if Jesus is our everything, if we realize that He alone is worth living for, not any stuff, any status, any accomplishments, any relationships. Jesus alone is our everything. This same message of the gospel changes lives because the power of God is at work. So the story of Acts and the gospel ministry of the Apostle Paul are ours to take up and carry on into the next chapter. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? If you call yourself a Christian, if you take that name upon yourself, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you claim that you do believe these things. So now let's do them. Let's walk by faith, carry them out, continue to do and to teach what Jesus began. End with this. I already mentioned the very last word of Acts, without hindrance. One word in the Greek. 
The next to last word is boldness. And before that, all. Last three words, all boldness, no hindrance. That's the last note that Luke wants to leave in our mouths. All boldness. The word is parousia in the Greek. Uh, An author wrote this. I forgot to write down who it was. Not me. It denotes speech which is candid with no concealment of truth, clear with no obscurity of expression, and confident with no fear of consequences. Here are the questions I'd leave you with as we wrap up Acts. What gives us courage to speak truth candidly in a world that disdains and even ridicules people who believe these things, people who would believe in the unseen, the supernatural, an unseen God? What gives us courage to clearly proclaim that Jesus and none other is the way to life, that Jesus' life and death and resurrection are necessary objects of faith for you to be saved, that He's the only King, that He is the healing answer to every question asked in brokenness? What removes any fear of consequences, whether that's people snickering at you for believing these things or people doing far worse things to you, like throwing you in prison and taking away your life, as is happening to brothers and sisters around the world? The only answer to these questions is that Jesus is alive. He is the King. He is the Lord, not only of our lives, but of all creation. He has conquered sin and death for you if you believe in His name, and He promises to one day return physically, bodily, for all to see, to vindicate His people, and to right everything that is wrong with this world. This is the book of Acts, Jesus part two, still being told through our lives as followers of Jesus. May we be able to come to our end, whether it's tomorrow or in decades to come, and say with conviction with the Apostle Paul, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Let's pray toward that end. Lord Jesus, that's impossible in our own strength. But we trust that's our calling according to your Spirit's strength, the Spirit who dwells in every believer. So fill us with that Spirit. Let Jesus overflow from our lives individually and as a church that we might boldly, without hindrance, take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.